This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. In 2014, we devoted a couple of episodes to conversation about how parents might handle some of the most common conflicts and challenges they face in trying to raise young boys into adulthood. You can find those shows on our website under Episodes and the 2014 season. This time, we're presenting the first of two episodes that even the score a bit allow us to hear some ideas for parents and youngsters, too, about how to navigate some of the common and even not so common conflicts and challenges of the world of girls striving toward adulthood. Later, we'll be visiting with writer and scholar Laura Dotson-Renta and Michelle Coleman, founder and CEO of the Attachment Healing Center in New Mexico. But first, therapist and author Dr. Lisa Damore, Ph.D., who's also an occasional commentator on parenting issues for CBS This Morning. In 2016, she published the book Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. The way I laid out my book is that I'm saying there's seven developmental tasks that teenagers are working their way through as they move from being children to being adults. And a lot of what looks like chaos or confusing behavior is actually, you know, girls, but teenagers in general, making their way along each of these tasks. And it's not a straightforward process. Now, you do set out these seven transitions as chapter headings, and you say early on that it's pretty normal for adolescents, boys or girls, to begin pulling away from their parents, making their rooms their refuge, talking less, more one-word answers, uh, but that in general parents are more all right with it when boys do it than when girls do it. Why is that? Well, this is a really interesting thing, and it was one of the real pleasures of researching this book, is that I would come across research studies And I thought, oh my gosh, they just demonstrated empirically something that I've kind of intuited or a lot of parents have intuited. And what we find when we look at the research is that parents are comfortable giving more privacy to their sons than to their daughters. And, you know, there's a few different reasons. One is, um, I think often parents expect um, and get a, a high degree of closeness from their daughters. And we just have a lot more comfort as a culture with giving boys more latitude or expecting the boys will be more private and not quite so forthcoming. And so, you know, those stereotypes may or may not hold up, but when teenage boys become more withdrawn or more private from their parents, they may be talking to other people. You know, I I have said this and I say this in the book, you know, it's not unusual for me to have parents say, oh, you know, he's a teenage, teenage boy, he doesn't talk to us, you know, and they say it with kind of a smile. But if a teenage girl stops talking to her parents, everybody gets worried. And I think that what we need to remember is adolescents want privacy. They want distance and space. And we should hold you know, the same standards for girls as we do for boys. And, um, and I think you know, I've, I've watched as I've had this conversation with parents individually and in large groups when I point out that teenage girls are doing actually nothing different from what teenage boys are doing you can see parents relax, right? Because then it becomes less about some, you know, worrisome rupture in their relationship with their daughter and more about normal development and, you know, being fair in terms of what we expect of both girls and boys. I was trying to work through that myself, um, and I was wondering if it's that parents think of girls as more vulnerable to calamity than boys, or they have specific big fears about the big life-disrupting acts of pregnancy or things like that. Is there something that is specific to 
young girls that might explain uh, that a little bit better? I think there there can be. I think historically there's been this sense that somehow girls are more vulnerable through adolescence. You know, more bad things can happen. You know, like you say, they could get pregnant, they could get taken advantage of, things like that. We're in an interesting moment as parents in that um, we now have a lot more information about our teenagers than any parents ever have had before um, because we look at their phones and we look at their digital technology use. and. Um, I know that that is often advised as a responsible parenting behavior. Um, I think it's a lot more complicated than that, how much parents should or shouldn't be monitoring what kids are doing on their phones. Um, Because a lot of what kids are doing on their phones are the exact same things that we did in locker rooms, we did on the back of the bus, you know, those kinds of conversations that we had with our friends that were sort of irreverent or silly or boundary pushing, even if our behavior was very much, you know, as it should have been. Um, And so I will say, I think now there's a lot more kind of overall anxiety for parents of teenagers. Um, I almost sometimes think about it almost like a a full body CT scan. You know, those, um, those, those scans that some physicians will recommend, but a lot of physicians strongly don't, that go looking for any problem anywhere in the body as a preventative measure. So I think in some ways, What goes on on a kid's phone is a little bit like a full-body CT scan. It's a ton of data. And, you know, a lot of physicians will not recommend a full-body CT scan because you end up with all of this information that you never needed to know and that unnecessarily alarms you because there's not really a problem and only because you went fishing did you find something that might be benign or might have gone away on its own or was never going to turn into a problem. And I think that that's often the experience of the American parent right now they have a ton of data on their teenagers. And so then they see some, you know, probably off-color conversation between, you know, two teenagers of any gender, and it can really get their alarm bells ringing. And what I am trying to constantly remind parents of is, we had a lot of those off-color conversations too. There was no record and no way for our parents to see, and so no one became alarmed, and they never needed to. Yeah, this phrase, unnecessarily alarmed, does come up in your book, Untangled, in that each chapter kind of goes through what's sort of normal to expect uh, and offers good tips about what to do about it. But then each chapter ends with what to be alert for especially. What's the more extreme condition in this category? For example, in the chapter about departing from childhood, you note that if the lingering in childhood phase is going on too long or the jumping to adult behaviors is coming too soon and too certainly, then parents might want to respond. Say more about that in general and in that particular chapter. Sure, sure. So just to kind of give the broad overview of the book, so there's seven developmental strands and in order they are parting with childhood, joining a new tribe, harnessing emotions, contending with adult authority, which I will tell you was my favorite chapter to write. Um, planning for the future, entering the romantic world, and caring for herself. And those chapters go in that order. That's, you know, the chapter headings. And in general, those are sort of, that's the order of the things that are a big deal for teenagers. Um, That first they need to sort of pull away from their families, then they need to find friends, then they need to manage all the big emotions they've got. At the same time, and I say this in the introduction, these seven developmental strands happen in order and all at once, you know, and I think that that's part of the stress of adolescence. So as I was working on the book and trying to come up with a structure that 
felt right to me. Um, it came as such a, a useful innovation in the book when I decided that every chapter would end with a section called When to Worry. And, and I think um, the way I think about my book, and I've had other people sort of spontaneously describe my book to me, is to say, you know, most of the book is saying, okay, this super weird thing your kid does, don't worry about it, here's why. Here, this other super weird thing your kid does, don't worry about it, here's why. Or this annoying thing. But then at the end of every chapter, I say, okay, now we're over a line. You know, this is outside the normal range of adolescent behavior. And so, um, you know, chapter one, parting with childhood, there's a lot of stuff that girls and boys, you know, will do that is, you know, part of their journey to move away from being young to being older. But there are some things in that journey that tell me think something isn't working. So girls who really seem trapped in being little and want to be little and don't seem to be wanting to move forward towards adulthood, that for me always raises a flag. And then, of course, girls and boys, you know, a lot of the book applies to boys um, who are racing ahead, you know, 12-year-olds who are trying to dress like 20-year-olds, um, you know, 13-year-olds who are becoming sexually active, um, that that obviously is sort of grounds for concerns as well. Lisa, I'm interested in asking you to talk a little bit about what is often a, a key conflict for um young girls to be experiencing, young boys too, but it's special and different with girls, and that's bullying. You write about it a couple times in different chapters, particularly as it relates to how girls bully first. I've always heard that girls tend to bully more psychologically, but there have also been some very disturbing, brutal, and even fatal stories of physical bullying between girls. So I was interested in your discussion about distinguishing conflict from bullying without excusing real bullying. Could you talk a little bit about that distinction for a parent to be making? Sure. So to start with that, the last bit there. So one of the things I think that we don't do enough of is making a distinction between conflict and bullying, like you say. So conflict is kids not getting along. Bullying is when um, a child is on the receiving end of mistreatment and there's a power differential and they are unable to defend themselves. You know, so it's very much a one-way street. And I think um, often when kids come home and talk about what's going on at school, they may talk about conflict, but it sounds like bullying. So they'll tell what's being done to them at school, which, you know, they're human. They get to do that. And parents can think, oh, my gosh, my child is being, you know, bullied at school. But often when parents, you know, get in touch with the school, they get a fuller picture, you know, that there may be more of a two-way street going on between children. So I think it's very important for us to not overreact to what is conflict, because conflict just comes with human beings being in close quarters with one another. That's a very typical part of you know, any, any group of people who have to be together all day for nine months a year are going to come into conflict with one another. Um, bullying, like you say, is, is much more serious. It's a systematic and you know, consistent mistreatment of somebody who is helpless. Um, for what it's worth, and I think this, this can't get said enough, boys, when we look at them, you know, just looking at the data, are much, much more aggressive than girls, both physically, um, and they also are as relationally aggressive. So um, when we talk about, you know, girls use relational aggression, things like excluding, eye-rolling, gossiping, things like that, it turns out actually boys are even with girls in terms of, how, of using those same tactics to mistreat one another. Um, so 
girls in some ways have gotten a bad rap around bullying because everybody talks about mean girls and oh, girls are so mean. But when we just look at straight up frequency of unkind behavior, girls are actually um, kinder to one another than boys are. Um, But there's an interesting phenomenon. It's something I write a monthly column for the New York Times, and I wrote about this a while back. Um, And I think the title of the column was something like, girls aren't meaner than boys, it just looks like that, or something along those lines. And what we see when we keep digging into the data is that when girls have a fight or a disagreement, the impact is different than when boys have a fight or a disagreement. Um, When girls are upset, they tend to discuss it. They go find somebody and they want to talk about it. And then when a girl hears that a friend is upset, she engages in what we call vicarious stress. She becomes upset and then she wants to talk about it. In contrast, when boys are upset, they tend to distract themselves. If something goes wrong with a friend, it's much more likely for a boy than a girl that the boy will go home, go to his room, you know, do something on his computer, go outside and shoot hoops, something like that, and he keeps it to himself. Um, this lessens the impact of one, anyone, or lessens the, the reach of any one mean event. So what we see is one mean thing happens among some girls and everybody hears about it. One mean thing happens among some boys and no one may hear about it. This isn't necessarily better or worse for boys or girls. Girls get a lot more social support than boys do. I think there's a lot of boys who suffer very quietly. At the same time, girls can kind of keep things going well past a helpful point by talking and talking and talking, whereas boys often feel better faster because they're not discussing it endlessly. So it's an interesting, you know, once you kind of get into the world of bullying and disagreement among girls and boys, the data get really interesting really fast. Classically, if you look into the bullying phenomenon, you often get to the point where, well, the bully must be having issues as well. Uh, I mean, and of course, you write about keeping an eye out for, uh, you know, whether your daughter is actually participating or being a bully herself. But I'm curious if the conversation about, you know, the psychology of bullying uh, is, is also something that you can start to introduce to girls and teens that allow them to be curious and empathetic about this person to sort of understand it and going around that way somehow offers a, a, a solution or a crack in the veneer? You know, that's an interesting question. I think um, there is, you know, kids who are bullying, there's often some degree of suffering, right? That they, they're, they're struggling with something. And, you know, empathy and developing empathy for even for people who seem to have a lot of power and seem to be enjoying it, I think is always a good thing. Um, When we look at the literature on bullying in terms of how you prevent bullying or stop bullying, what has been found by the people who really do beautiful work on this is that it's the bystanders who have power to make a difference. That um, a child who's being victimized by bullying cannot stop it. That's the nature of bullying. And the bully um, doesn't often have a very good reason to stop it. It tends to be working well for the bully. They're getting a lot of social power, and you know, with power comes you know, a degree of wanting to hold on to it. But it's the bystanders who invariably are present when bullying happens who can effectively intervene. And they can do a few different things. One, and this can be a risky thing and not something kids want to do all the time, which is fine, is they can confront the bully. You know, they can say, you know what, knock it off, you're being cruel, stop it. 
Another thing they can do, and this is a more likely thing for kids to do, is they can try to protect the victim. You know, they can say, here, you know, you come sit with us. You know, why don't, there's plenty of room at our lunch table. We'd love to have you. And another thing you can do um, as a child who watches bullying is you can go get a grown-up or you can alert an adult that that's what's happening. And, you know, it's an interesting thing to be both a psychologist and a parent. And I've tried not to have my profession be too much of a liability to my parenting, which it very much can be. But um, the work I do has shaped how I talk with my own daughters about bullying. And what I will say to them is, look, you know, if there's a kid who's being mistreated and you're there to watch it, I don't care how you feel about that kid. It is on you to do something. And I've given them, them those three options. You either need to tell the person to knock it off, you need to invite that kid to come play with you, or you need to let a grown-up know what's going on. And that's non-negotiable regardless of, um, you know, you may not like that kid, and that's fine. You still have this obligation. It strikes me is that there's also a lot of power in just the explicit watching action, uh, which, you know, you don't, do if it's getting really ugly. I mean, you go get help, but that, and this is true for adults too, and they, you know, come upon uncomfortable situations in the grocery store with parents yelling at kids or even crying that they say, I, I want to pretend I'm not seeing this. But there is a power of, of, of when somebody is engaging in that kind of action to know that somebody or a group of children are standing watching, it can really probably dissipate the, um, urgency of the violence or the bullying? Well, you hope. The flip of it is, bullies often do it for an audience. You know, the, the, the point of bullying is a display of power. And, um, you know, one of the one of my favorite little bits I include in the book um, is about the seventh grade. And Yeah, what is it about um, the seventh grade? You what say? is it about the seventh grade? <laughs> and so here's what it is about the seventh grade. The seventh grade is like this New Yorker cartoon that I quote in the book where it has two congressmen, you know, walking up Capitol Hill, holding their briefcases, and one is saying to the other, so how do you know you have power if you don't abuse it? You know, and I think that that's, that's the challenge of seventh grade, and that's the challenge of bullying, which is being unkind brings a lot of power when you are in the seventh grade. People are scared of you. And when they're scared of you, weirdly, they want to be your friend because they don't want to be your target. So for bullying, you know, the reason that bystanders are so powerful is they're always there. You know, bullying doesn't work unless you have an audience. You know, that's not true universally, but that is normally how things go. So what we need to do is we need to activate that audience to stop watching and go get some help. We'll have more with Lisa Damore, author of Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood in part two of our program next time. If you can't wait for that, you can hear our entire interview with her on our episode page for this show right now. It's labeled March 2017 at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, another take from another writer, scholar, and mother of two girls, Laura Dotson-Renta, is next when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. Today's program is Raising Girls, Part 1. We're getting a sampling of ideas from three women, and next is Dr. Laura Dotson-Renta, Ph.D., a writer and scholar affiliated with Brown University in Rhode Island. Dr. Laura Dotson-Renta lives in Connecticut with her husband and their two girls. Her areas of study include Latin studies, French studies, African studies. She was born in Puerto Rico. She writes for the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, and other publications. Her two girls were four and seven when we talked with her, but she's already confronting issues of race and gender and other challenging topics in parenting her kids early on the path to adulthood. One of your essays in The Atlantic starts this way, and I'd like you to comment, say a little bit more about it. A few months ago, I was walking home from the bus stop with my eldest daughter during the last week of kindergarten. She was lagging behind as usual, picking up sticks and shiny rocks, when she casually asked, Mama, are the kids with browner skin more trouble? Why can some of them not read too well? Why do some people think Spanish is not good? In that moment, you write, the heart that lives in my stomach jumped and a mild nausea set in. Say more about that. <laughs> well, you know, kids have a way of, of bringing focus and clarity and really putting you on the spot and uh, making you think of ways to sort of mediate or translate the world for them. Um, it was evident to me then, as it is to me now, that she's seven, going on eight very soon, and it's an age where kids really notice and process everything. Um, no longer is it enough for them to take your word for it as their parent, but they see an observable reality. You know, they're making sense of things as they observe them, as they see them. And with that come questions and conclusions and um, a, a different kind of needing from you as a parent in terms of making sense of things and... At the time, we were in a pretty diverse school district that drew from many different parts of town. Um, it had a socioeconomic spectrum. And there were many people that were like us, my husband and I, which is to say, you know, a lot of education, value it highly, have had a lot of really privileged and great life experiences overall. And a lot of kids who came from struggling socioeconomic backgrounds and at the time, you know, she was able to see and observe firsthand the overlap of ethnicity, race, socioeconomics in the classroom. So she had students who were first-generation immigrants, and she had students who were black. She had a lot of students who were Latino. She's half Latina on my side, um, like her. And so she started to ask, you know, why do people say things about speaking Spanish that maybe aren't so nice? Uh, why does it seem that, you know, the little boy that is getting in trouble, you know, is consistently a child of color? And so we started to talk about these things in a way that was comprehensible for her, but that was honest uh, to what she is capable of understanding and, and to her intellect. How do those conversations go, and uh, uh, what was your goal? Uh, how do you feel you did with them? 
You know, you hope as a parent that you do all right. Um, I, I can't hope with a seven-year-old to get into the history of this country or socioeconomics or anything like that. But I can say, okay, well, you know, why do you think that is? Or what do you think is right or wrong? What doesn't make sense to you and why? And, you know, we took it piecemeal, uh, bit by bit. And once she stopped showing interest or maybe was satisfied, you know, we're done for that day and we'll pick it up again if and when it's an issue. Um, but I think that with, especially the younger that kids are, it's important for me to say, it's all right to notice differences and to question them. It's not necessary and actually counterproductive to say, I don't see race, I don't see gender, I don't see language. We see those things. And to say that we don't is disingenuous, especially to a child who clearly does. But what I say to her is, okay, we see those things and we acknowledge them, and then we move forward and say, okay, well, I know this about this person, and it's all right that they're different in X, Y, or Z way, and that includes her. It's great to acknowledge. Um, it's perfectly normal to acknowledge that she is different in maybe perspective or in what languages she hears at home or in her parents' background. But you just move forward from that rather than not acknowledging it. Well, with regard to gender, race, and class, uh, what are some other kind of looming issues that your youngsters might have to wrestle with in the future or maybe already are encountering that uh, might be helpful to parents that are uh, going to be facing these issues too? For us in our particular household, it's the acknowledgement that the experience for our children will be different, very different, from that that each of us had. And this is true for both my husband and I. So I grew up in a Spanish-speaking household. I was born in Puerto Rico. Um, we had a very sort of cut and dry, you know, easily discernible way of, of identifying ourselves culturally. Um, I came here when I was in elementary school to the U.S. mainland from Puerto Rico, and I immediately knew that I had to learn English. You know, I was different. Um, my mother was struggling with language, particularly. And so I navigated my childhood in a very distinct cultural context where I was very comfortable and very at home saying, this is what I am. Um, my husband grew up, you know, speaking English, um, you know, kind of very Southern California, American household, uh, Protestant family, and the context was very different. And so our daughters will be navigating both of those identities, and they'll claim both mama and daddy in very different ways. And so what we try to do is, is navigate and maybe help our kids mediate that they don't have to choose that they can kind of feel at home in both sides of their families, but also, you know, with humility, accept that I, I, I don't fully understand their experience in the same way that my husband has to accept that, you know, he's, he, didn't, he never grew up a little girl and he never had to navigate um, having, you know, maybe two cultures, um, hearing mama speak one language to you while daddy speaks another. So... We're making the path as we go with them um, in full recognition that what they think of as normative in their childhood will be very different than what we thought of, both my husband and I, separately. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, 
That's one of my questions was sort of the inverse of that. Uh, now, I haven't had children, but I've helped parent some, and I like to say I survived my own childhood. But, you know, certainly parents bring the things that they did struggle with, uh, struggled understanding growing up into their game plan for raising their own kids. Uh, you were sort of talking about what was different for you, and you have to acknowledge that and work with that. Um, but what are some things that are coming up for you as a parent from your own childhood that you particularly want your kids to master that, you know, does feel familiar or does uh, seem maybe universal to, <laughs> to the growing up years? I think that there are some things about girlhood specifically that are universal that you feel like as a mother, okay, I, I have some of this at least. <laughs> I'm going to tackle this in the best way that I know how because I remember what it's like to be a girl at a certain age or at a certain point in life. Um, and so I'm reminded as I watch, particularly my eldest, my youngest is four, my eldest is uh, seven, going on eight. And seven going on eight is an age where you start a, you begin to leave early childhood behind and you start to navigate a bit of a more complicated social world. And I had forgotten, but quickly begin to remember how complicated that social environment of, of girls can be. Um, that there's kind of codes to navigate and groups begin to form and there's all of these things that you become aware of around seven, eight, nine years old that you can sense them, but you don't fully understand them. Um, and it's things of, you know, image and popularity and, you know, what is and is not considered weird or cool or, or fun. And so as I watch my eldest begin to observe and experience these things and manage them and ask questions about them, you start to remember what it was like yourself to be, you know, seven, eight years old and start to think, well, you know, dig back, dig deep. How was I feeling then? And what made me feel supported and seen and what didn't? And try to encourage the things that you know were helpful for you while maybe setting aside those that weren't. While trying to acknowledge that your child is not you. My daughter and I are very alike in some ways and very different and trying to adapt and come up with new methods of helping her manage her world that acknowledge that that she's a, a different entity now as we've talked with other guests about this parenting challenge um, issue that's come up is this idea that i think you're sort of touching on here which is the exploration of your own psyche your own childhood it seems like that you aren't intimidated by that or find that kind of fascinating, you know, to think back and dig back, as you just said. I, I will definitely say that, uh, particularly as you watch your kids get older and enter different phases of their young lives, it does, to some degree, require you to look back at yourself and your own childhood and how that has impacted the adult that you've become, and maybe question and think about, you know, what, what things, good and bad, what lessons, or even what baggage do I bring with me to parenthood, 
and how can I use that to help my children grow up? Or maybe how can I productively separate that and understand that whatever baggage I might have to deal with, it's not my children's to bear. So how can sometimes I draw a line of demarcation there and say, okay, this is my own issue. Um, let me not bring that to my children. And how can we maybe start a f something fresh here? So, you know, being very candid, I came from an environment where my parents did not have a good relationship. And my mother wasn't particularly empowered when I was a child. And I had to teach myself a lot of things about independence and about self-esteem, and I had to come to that late. And I had to watch my mother come to it very late, in, in her middle age, and claim these things after um, my parents divorced. And so, looking at my children, who do have two supportive parents, who have a positive relationship, they already have an experience that I never navigated, and so that's that's a blessing, but it's also bittersweet because I never experienced it, and to some degree I don't understand it. But I'm able to take a step back and sometimes and say, okay, you know, my children are in a good place in a number of aspects of their lives. Let me not necessarily bring my issues or my concerns and my baggage to them. So that comes to bear in things like independence um, because my mom might not necessarily have felt, um, have had the support that she needed. She was incredibly protective of me. And so sometimes I have to take a step back and say, all right, even though my instinct is to want to keep my kids near me in a cocoon, I have to let them be sometimes. And I have to take that step back and say, okay, the hyper worrying is, is mine. So I'm gonna let them play in the yard or something on their own and, and watch from afar rather than getting in the middle of it and you know, trying to mediate everything that they do. I'm gonna give them that space because that's, that's theirs, you know, this isn't me. So you navigate that and you try to find that balance between letting them fly and letting them experience what they need to experience and bringing to bear something that might be helpful for them from your own experience. Now, this sounds like a personal question, but you wrote about it in one of your recent columns uh, titled Nurturing the Father-Daughter Relationship That I Didn't Have, which you, you begin to speak of, of there uh, in describing your parents divorcing. Tell me a little bit more about that column and, and what that realization uh, has brought in your partnership with your husband. Um, over parenting your young daughters? Well, watching the relationship between my husband and our daughters is, I think, one of the greatest joys that I've been able to have in my adult life. Um, and it's been, it's been a lesson unto itself. I think that it's, for me personally, brought me a lot of hope and a lot of healing because if you didn't grow up with that kind of a nurturing uh, relationship with a parent, if you didn't feel that support and love and just safety, when you do see it manifested up close and personal for the first time in your life, it's, it's truly a revelation. And it makes me very happy, very content that my daughters have never known that kind of instability in their home lives, that they're view of a man 
you know, of manhood and of masculinity and of a male figure in their lives is so positive. And I hope, it is my hope, that the wonderful relationship that my husband has with our daughters will be the standard by which they measure their future relationships, that this is what they will seek in a life partner, that this is what they will look for in their friendships and interactions with the men in their lives, that it will be this kind of uh, a nurturing and respectful and empowering kind of relationship. So that's my hope for them. And then for me, it really has encouraged me or pushed me to maybe face and think about and reconsider you know, maybe have a reckoning and come to terms with um, how my own childhood impacted the way that I came to look at the world, uh, the positive and the negative, and, you know, reassess that uh, going forward um, in the rest of my life and in the relationship that I foster with both my partner and my children to really think about, you know, what are, what are the things that maybe I'm holding on to that aren't great, and what are the other things that have been really positive, um, if anything, having perhaps an, an instability in childhood forces you to be very independent and intrepid and strong at a very early age. And those are good traits to have, but it's not something you would necessarily wish on a child, the way that you get there. So watching the relationship between my husband and our daughters has been... For, for my, my kids, it's normal. This is all they know, and that's fantastic. But for me, it's definitely been a journey of self-discovery as well to rethink um, how I came to look at the world. And it has certainly brought me closer to my husband because watching who he is as a parent, it's really only raised my esteem for him and made our relationship even better. Well, it sounds like you have a, a good relationship there. Um, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about the teamwork that um, partners uh, who are raising children and young girls in particular in this case, but um, how that working relationship goes. How do you work out the occasions when you have a different opinion about what's best? Well, for us, um, it's, it's not... It's not that frequent, to be honest. We're mostly on the same page about the kids, which is, um, I, I think, why you know things have gone so well so far. We, we tend to have a similar vision of what we want for them and, and how we want to approach issues with them. But at least what we tend to do is to wait until the kids are asleep or no longer in the room and then talk about it and make sure that when the kids are there, we have a united front so that there's never the perception that you can get something from one of us that you can get from the other. You know, that you can, because kids are sneaky. Kids are wonderful and they're lovely, but they will sense weakness easily and quickly and know which parent to approach for what if they think that a better strategy may be had. Uh, right? And so you have to acknowledge that kids are really good at reading their own parents. And, uh, you know, reading when somebody might be amenable to compromise, whereas the other parent might not be, for example. And back each other up. I think that the most important thing that we decided long ago when the kids were really young was that we would have 
a united front in front of the kids, even if we then had to work out a disagreement and then modify our approach, but that they would know that, you know, mom would support dad or dad would support mom. We'll have more with writer and scholar Lara Dotson-Renta in part two of our program next time. In the meantime, if you're interested, you can hear her entire interview with us online uh, on our episode page for this show, labeled March 2017 at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, a woman who has raised several foster children and is working to help children with special attachment issues and their parents and foster parents navigate some of the harder challenges of raising girls. We'll meet Michelle Coleman next when Peace Talks Radio continues after a break. It's Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies for daily life. I'm Paul Ingalls. You're listening to the first of two episodes looking at addressing the conflicts that arise as young girls transition to adulthood. The challenges for parents, teachers, and other caring adults who are taking part in the raising of girls. Dr. Michelle Coleman, Ph.D., is our next guest. Dr. Coleman has worked in the field of foster care and adoption most of her life. She adopted two sisters with emotional needs from the foster care system while she was living in Virginia. And then 14 years later, she and her partner adopted a son with emotional needs from New Mexico. She's developed a model for treatment of youngsters with attachment issues that she and her staff employ at the Attachment Healing Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Dr. Coleman is the founder and CEO and described the youngsters they specialize in helping. Children we see might have been removed from the home because there was neglect in the beginning, uh, there might have been some abuse. Uh, parents might have been um, using drugs, um, suffering stresses from life, and maybe they hit their kids, um, restricted their kids, neglected them, weren't able to meet the adult needs as well as the children's needs. So those are some of the things that we see that will bring kids into custody. Um, what I'm seeing more of now is a lot of birth children whose parents were stressed, whose mom was stressed during the last trimester, um, to the last three months of the pregnancy. If mom's stressed, that baby feels that stress and is exposed to more cortisol, so they are being prepared for a stressful environment. So they come out not open and loving and receptive. They come out ready to protect themselves. Mm. Um, And when the parent doesn't know that, when the kid pushes away or doesn't want to be held, Um, they honor that, and unfortunately, then the child doesn't learn to look to the parents to take care of them. The kids grow up taking care of just themselves. 
So you're working in some cases with intact families, biological parents, but in some cases foster parents, uh, children who were, for whatever reason, separated, abandoned, or uh, put into the foster care system. Yes, yes. Could have been adopted. Might have been an international adoption. Might be kinship care, grandparents, uh, older siblings. Yes, all of those. Okay. So your literature, your website, uses the term difficult child or oppositional child, children who have a reactive attachment disorder. So what is RAD, R-A-D, and what usually has happened for a youngster to wind up with this label in addition to maybe what you've already mentioned? So can I say what the healthy way is and then how our kids stray away from that? Sure, yeah. So an infant... Uh, communicates to the parent that they have a need, they're hungry, they're cold, they're lonely, or they're scared, they cry. And in the ideal world, the parent responds to that baby's cry. The very first thing they do is pick that baby up, soothe them, it's okay, you're going to be all right, right? Soothe them first, calm the emotional needs. And then the mother or the father or whoever the caregiver is, then they determine what the need is and they meet the need. So the next time that baby is distressed, they'll communicate that. Our babies didn't get that. So on the other end is the child who had a need. And maybe in the beginning might have communicated it. But that need might have been met with neglect, yelling, hitting. And we always say never, ever, ever shake a baby. But they might have been shaken. That's painful. All of those things are painful. And so what that baby learned is when I tell somebody outside of myself, in particular when I tell an adult that I have a need, I'm met with pain. Not going to do that anymore. So our kids do not communicate directly that they have a need. They're not looking to people outside of themselves to trust. They're saying, I've got to defend myself against the pain. I'm the only one I can look to. Mm -hmm. And so they do not look to the adult caregivers to take care of them, to have control over them, and they don't learn emotional regulation. So they can't get excited and learn to calm down because that's emotional regulation being able to be calmed when distressed. And they didn't learn that, and we only learn that in relationship with others. So you just are starting to describe that, but then how does that manifest in behavior that people can recognize, our listeners would recognize? Right. So that comes, we call those miscues. So they have a need. They can't tell you what the need is, but they need the adult to come in close, but they don't want you to stay in close too long, so they need to push you away. So some of those behaviors would be being aggressive, with adults, being defiant, being disrespectful. Also, charm is important. If I'm going to pull you in close, I have to be able to smile and be cute and say the things you want to hear. And and if you don't live with that kind of kid, you won't know the difference. Uh, living with it, it gets old. Mm-hmm. You, you know. Um, they're also, they don't know how to do relationships with peers. They can't play on the playground with the other kid. They're going to hit. They're going to yell. They're going to steal. They're going to just inappropriate interactions with their peers. They don't know the give and take. They've never had that, so they haven't learned it. Psychologists will define a certain level of this independence behavior or detachment behavior or spending more time in their rooms, closing the door, getting less verbal with their parents, one-word answers, what happened at school today, eh, nothing much, <laughs> as a accepted or reasonable part of teenage development. Remembering that the population I serve is the population that didn't get a lot of that positive mirroring when they were children. 
So for all kids, it's really important to be seen. I think a lot of times teens want to pull away from their parents is because their parents are telling them how to live, what you did is wrong. Like it's full of all this negative and this put down and, ooh, why are you listening to that music? That music is awful. We're not really working hard to join their world. Tell me about your world. What's going on? What happened today? Um, you know, I was gone for four days last night. My son is camped out on the floor of my office, and he is filling me with everything that's happened while I've been gone. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to be 15 in a couple of months, so that's a really big deal. He wants me to know. He wants me to know everything. Um, there's a girl he wants to ask out for Valentine's Day. Ma, how do I do that? What do I say? How do I... Right? So I listen to his music. He gets to share new music with me. Something happens on the bus on the way to school. It happens with a peer or, or a girl breaks his heart. He comes home and he tells me about it. I listen to him. I don't tell him how to feel. I don't tell him what to do. I listen to him. Wow, that was hard. Thank you for sharing that with me. Okay, let me interrupt because some parents listening to this right now are swooning, wishing that they <laughs> had that too. So, and we've talked about this a little bit, but in your case then, in a nutshell, what allowed this to happen? Is it all this work that you've been describing then? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's okay. it's absolutely. He knows I see him. I'm not going to judge him. I'm not going to put him down. I'm going to challenge him. I'm going to call him higher to be his best. But it's that attunement piece mm-hmm. that you asked about. Um, he shares his world with me because I don't judge it. And how um, many years have you had with him? Three years. Probably almost three and a half now. Mm-hmm. And starting in a difficult place? <sighs> So the insight I had a couple of weekends ago, I told my partner, because, Paul, you got to know, we were down on our knees, like, oh, my God, I can't do it. How are we going to get through this? Um, Like, he physically attacked me one day, and I I think the only reason I'm still here and there's a story is because I grew up in the inner city, and when he physically attacked me, I attacked back. Like, I stood up. Like, what? And it shocked him that I didn't, like, cower, and, you know, I just stood up. Excuse me? And that gave my partner a chance to come in and say, okay, call the police. This isn't okay. And he calmed down. Like, immediately he caught himself. I'm sorry, Um, was this fairly recently? uh, That was like three months ago. Yeah, it was fairly recently. Yeah, so he was at that place of his trauma was coming up, seeing domestic violence in his birth home. Mm -hmm. And that was coming up. And so it, it reenacted. Right. He he attacked me and I was helping him with his math homework. But it was also what he was telling himself then. I'm stupid. I can't. Right. And so he's hiding the shame from himself and he projects it on me. And he was able to shift that. But so how do I do that? I attune to him. I hear him. I see him. I reflect that back. Is that really how you want to show up? So it's been a lot of work over the past three and a half years to be able to have him want me in his world. And it strikes me is that... Status quo is probably two steps forward, one step back, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yet you stay <clears throat> grounded. You use your tools. You stay present. Yeah. We process that. We get through that. He apologizes. And he learns from it. His brain changes. Right. And we, we move forward. And I still love him. He's still my son. He's, he's You're going to be okay. But that's true. And that's, that's true in our adult partner relationships, too. Yeah. I mean, when you get right down to it. Right. Yes. Yeah. They're going to be just that's the attachment cycle is we connect. We do things. We play games. We go to dinner. We go to the movies. We play cards. Right. We talk. We connect. We have all those things to connect. And then the next piece, the next part of the cycle is disruption. Something is going to happen to disrupt the attachment cycle. Um, You were late picking me up. You're late for dinner. You said you were going to do and you didn't follow through. You forgot. Natural disruptions. 
the next part of the attachment cycle is the most important. When I make a mistake, when I disrupt the connection, I must repair. And I come in and I take 100% ownership for, that was wrong. I should not have done that. I apologize. I'm going to work on not doing that going forward. Mm -hmm. And then you have to follow through on those actions because otherwise then it's just words. And then we connect again. But disruption is a natural part of the attachment cycle. Right. Well, it's a natural part of life because really what you're trying to do is offer tools for coping. Your website says, we all wish for lives without trauma or difficulty, but even if our lives contain such things, we can deal with them. The skills and awarenesses that you're giving youngsters are really supposed to help them no matter what the trauma or difficulty. Absolutely. I mean, and then they get to move forward with those skills. Right. Right. Because life is going to continue to happen. So we'd started talking about specific things that probably seem to be part of the agenda of young girls growing up, sexuality and puberty and sexual relations. And you also mentioned that sexual abuse is in the cards for some of these young people that uh, are at the core of your work. So a lot of times when our young girls are out in the world looking for love in all the wrong places, as we say, um, they're looking for validation. And I said to my class this morning, I realize our parents didn't realize this when they were raising us, but the brain doesn't change with a focus on the negative. The brain changes with a focus on the positive. So are we as parents scanning for what our teenage daughters are doing well, what they did right? Are we making it big? Are we making that a big issue? Oh, I'm so pleased. So my daughter, my youngest daughter, who is 25 this year, she was ditching school when she was in high school. She was ditching all the things I said we see with the teenagers, right? And she's bringing home bad grades. I'm getting emails from teachers. She's not bad. She's just doing awful. And so traditionally, she'd bring home an F or a progress report. I see how awful it is. She'd get a lecture from me, Paul. Like, I could go on for days about that F and how she's doing in school. And so one day in the middle of that, I said to myself, wait a minute. If I'm going to get more of what I focus on, I need to stop focusing on the Fs. I need to stop making that a big deal. And when she brings home a B or a C even, right, stop and make that a big deal. So when I started, she, and she brought home a passing grade. It was huge. It was a big deal. Wow, thank you so much. This tells me you're studying at night. You're making the choice to stay in class. You're not ditching. All the things I said in the negative, I turned it to the positive because she had to be making those choices to bring that grade home. Now, our kids aren't going to do something really big initially. It's like, you know, sticking your toe in the water, right? They're going to do it small first. We have to scan for when they're doing it well and then making those small things big. Go on and on and on. I say to parents, even if you have to repeat yourself, repeat yourself. It feels good. They're getting dopamine. They're feeling good. They're getting oxytocin in the relationship. This is what you want. This is how they come to care about what it is you care about. And then she started getting good grades, and she actually graduated high school on time. Mm -hmm. I was shocked. <laughs> so the devil's advocate question that I'm sure you're aware of, you know, when you hear people describe this, it's, and they, they, they tend to say, okay, now you're 
overdoing it or you're giving credit for attendance or for just showing up and what would you say to that person? Um, so what is it you tell me your daughter's doing? She's ditching school. She's making choices you don't want her to make. I'm sorry. Is that important to you? Are you willing to do something different? Is what you've been doing up till now working? That's what I usually say because I'm not going to fight. Mm-hmm. So either you're a customer and you're motivated to doing something differently or you're not. And why is she going looking for love in all the wrong places? Because she's not getting it at home. Right? Yes, I hear people say, well, I'm not going to praise you for what you should be doing anyway. Okay, but, (laughs) okay, this is important to me that she graduates high school and goes to college. This is important to me because I know it's going to be important to her down the road. This is her life. I'm going to start where she is. Meet them where they are. Let me ask if there's something that we didn't get to that feels sort of essential toward helping listeners. Nothing we didn't get to, but if Mm -hmm. I can just reiterate something that we did get to, and that is it is most, most, most important for parents to care about themselves enough to get the help that they need first. Um, I caution against taking... If it's just trauma or simple issues, that's fine. You can take a kid and drop them off at therapy. But then if you don't know how to support that kid when they come home, if you haven't been a part of the therapeutic process, how do you know how to handle what's going to come up? It's most important that our parents be a part of that child's healing process. And as we're a part of it, we have to heal. We're worth it. And to me, that's huge self-care huge self-care for the parents. If you think about all the things that I've asked the parents to do when the kids are in your face, when they're yelling at you, when they're stealing from you, all of this, that you have to be calm, you have to show up, regulate it. Self-care is number one. You have to be exercising, dieting, having your support group, having your friends, having that quiet time, whatever rejuvenates you, right? It is essential, Paul. If we're going to show up as the parents we want to be, that we take care of ourselves first. Because when our well is filled, from that we can dip to serve others. We'll have more with Dr. Michelle Coleman of New Mexico's Attachment Healing Center in part two of our program on Raising Girls next time. You can hear our entire longer, complete interviews with Dr. Coleman, Dr. Laura Dotson-Renta, and Dr. Lisa Damore on our episode page for this show, labeled March 2017, at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. And that's where you can learn how to contribute your support to this series and take advantage of our entire archive of shows dating back to 2002. Joshua Doffer Johnson assisted on this show. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.